And welcome back to the Blueprint. How are we doing today, SJ? All good, JB. What's up, mate? How are you? Good as always. So who we got on the pod today? Well, today we've got Patrick Reich, a good friend of mine from Imperial College London. Me and Patrick studied together from 2015 to 2019. He's doing some very interesting stuff in the electric car market space. We're going to get into it very shortly here. Let's go. Patrick. All right. Can you hear me? We can hear you loud and clear. How are right. you? Now, now you have to see me as well. Fucking hell. I'm good. How are you? Oh, That's a handsome beard, man. Look at that one. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Where, where are you at? What's the, what's the setting? Uh, man, I'm sitting on a balcony. Let's see if I can get it set up. How's this? You seeing all right? Perfect. Are you going to yeah. say you're sitting what? in the Ritz or you're sitting somewhere? No, it's just this balcony. <laughs> yeah, right. Where are you guys sitting? In my flat. <laughs> somewhat less impressive. <laughs> we could go sit on the balcony as well. There's not a lot of room for us. Where's Where are you living these days, Siraj? I live at Limehouse near Canary Wharf. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, but you're, you're, you're still in London, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm in uh, Earl's Court. Oh, wow. For some reason, it doesn't... I mean, it's a sunny day. That's why it looks like you're in a different country. Lovely stuff. So, yeah. Man, how have you been? It's really been a long time. Yeah, man. Uh, great. You know, not much going on. But, you know, still living in West London, working, chilling. <laughs> no, not much going on. The guy casually raises £5 million. Pound. So there's not much going on. <laughs> no, but no, it is. It's a I lot. Wonder what a lot I wonder what a lot's going on is for you then. Yeah, but I mean, like, overall, the grand scheme of things, not much has changed. So, what are you guys? Yeah. Oh, you're, you're working in, uh, you're, are you work, working in the city? Yeah, I started working in the city. Well, I, st- I started working for Nomura. So, mm-hmm. I, was, I was there for five months. And then I changed very recently to a, an asset manager. So, I'm working as a quant now in asset Damn. manager. Nice. And Patrick, I'm, I don't know if we've met before, maybe in passing. But I'm James. I think we were in the same year at Imperial. Yeah, probably. If you started in 2015, yeah, we would have been. Um, yeah, I'm currently in banking, but we'll see how long that lasts. <laughs> <laughs> but um, man, I remember the thing with uh, Bonnet. So we got, we had a description with all the podcasts that we air. And the thing with Bonnet is like, I remember you sent me the deck two years ago when I was working in VC. And that was like early, early days, right? That was wild. Because then only recently, like what, two months ago, I think, Adil actually told me, he was like, man, did you hear Patrick and Ed. Actually, no, it wasn't even Adil. I went to Adil and said, man, did you hear about Patrick? Like, what the hell? And then it was, it was James. James sent me this link. He was like, we should try to get this guy on the podcast. I'm going to message him on LinkedIn. I was like, nah, nah, you don't need to message him, bro. <laughs> I, I didn't know him. You're at the uni with this guy. I was like, holy shit, that's crazy, man. But what's the story been? Yeah, so like, because we probably talked property back then, but what's the story been with Bonnet since that first initial deck? Or maybe maybe just yeah. start with what what did that deck look like? Like what did your product look like those two years? <laughs> Dude, I think Suraj, I, from what I remember, I think you were probably the first guy we showed the deck to. Oh, I wow. think like we went to an Imperial, right? We went to five six eight. You're sitting there. We're just like, oh, that's Suraj. He's in VC, I think. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I think probably didn't even know what VC stands for. And then uh, I, I I came up and just showed you the deck. I think at the time we might have still been doing hardware. Uh-huh. Uh, not not sure basically we started off back then um with elliot making these like super slick chargers like literally hardware for people to charge their electric vehicles and then we had a couple of refinements of the idea kept on pivoting uh and then we ended up with bonnet as it is today could, could, yeah, could you give us a summary what is bonnet today for people listening yeah, I mean, one sentence is the most user-friendly way to charge your car when you're not at home. Okay. It's, uh, so it's, a, it's an app that you download on the phone um, as an electric vehicle driver. You're away from your house, so you don't have uh, charging uh, available instantly to you. Or you're living in central London and you just have no opportunity to install uh, a charger You know, at your driveway, garage, have no off-street parking. And so Bonnet is the app that allows you to access almost any charge point out there, uh, so public ones. So you pull up to the charge point with the Bonnet app, you select the right connector, click start charge, connect the vehicle to the charger, electrons start flowing, the billing happens automatically, you know, you connect your credit card, and then you have uh, enough juice to, to continue your journey. So, so before Bonnet, how would EV users typically charge when they're out and about? Okay, well, they still do it like it's um, in a very similar fashion. But the thing is that all there's a bunch of different charge points run by a bunch of different companies. So there's like 50 to 100 companies that own charge points in the UK. 
Meaning that, you know, if you want to charge with company A, which might be one of the charge points on your street, you have their app or their card or their website, whatever. I see. It's, and then not, another it's not like Shell or BP where you can just fill up with whatever. Yeah, exactly. So even then, right, it's like, it's very simple because there's probably four companies total that do petrol. Uh, and you can always pay credit cards. So you don't need like memberships, nothing Absolutely. like that. Whereas here it's just like pieces of metal on the ground. God knows who runs them. It's like your local council. It's some private company or Shell or BP. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, you, you pull up and it says, oh, you, to use this charge point, you need an account with this and this. And you're like, okay. And you do the account and it's like, oh, you also need a physical like oyster looking card. And you're like, oh, great. How do I get it? It's like, oh, arrive to your home address in five to seven business days. You're like, shit, okay. But how does that help me charge my car now? now yeah. Yeah. So Bonnet, does Bonnet then effectively aggregate all these charging points and it be as like a, a hub? Yeah. So they Literally. all come together, you join Bonnet and you have access to everything. Yeah, exactly. So much like uh, you would be buying tickets through like Skyscanner or Expedia for all the different like airlines, right? You wouldn't be going to British Airways and then yeah. to Lufthansa and stuff. Same with Bonnet. So okay. and beyond that, really, it's like the first step of user friendliness is the aggregation play. And then the two other points that are very important is one is the standardization of pricing. So all these chargements, they cost different, they have different rates. So some of them will charge by kilowatt hours so by the electricity you consume. Some of them will be charging by a time, so by minute. Then you have like overstay fees, plug-in fees. And so you really only know how much a, vehicle, uh, a charge is going to cost you after you've completed the charge, right? It's like super okay. opaque. You don't understand what's going on. So with Bonnet, all of those charge points cost the same. Uh, so we have one fixed rate by kilowatt hour. Everything's standardized irrespective of location, company, speed of charge point even. And then the last bit is the reliability piece. So when you look at our app and you see that our charge point is located here at like these coordinates and is available, mm. there's a 99% chance that when you get there, all of, you know, you will be able to charge because right. today you might see something on like a website somewhere and it'll say, oh, this charge point's here. You can use it and you pull up and you're lucky if it's, if it still exists, right? <laughs> it didn't get dismantled. It's like outdated info. Uh, then you're lucky if no one else is using it and just the information we didn't get passed on. And then lastly, um, you're lucky if you can actually start a charge with just your phone. Chances are you'll need a card. So how did you get, how did you manage to do that? Because surely you would have to be in contact with all the different EV charging providers. And then what was that? Was that a sales process there? <laughs> yeah. or how did you manage this? Well, it's a, it's a typical like marketplace problem, right? You have to build out supply and demand at the same time because you run to supply and you're like, hey, I have all these drivers. And they're like, yeah right <laughs> and then you have and you equally for to make it viable for ev drivers to use you you need a lot of coverage uh it was weird uh the first like seven months were very um uh difficult to scale supply so it was really just like you know ruthlessly pitching yourself to these guys to these guys being like hey i have these drivers and then you run to like a fleet like a ride hailing fleet for instance like free now or bolt and you're like hey i have all these charge points and then kind of get an MOU or an LOI signed with one of the guys and you kind of go back and then you just, yeah. And then it's, then it has a snowball effect. So you reach a certain plateau, not plateau, like a tipping point rather, yeah. at which point it's a lot faster and, you know, the machine starts to just like run itself. So what came first for you guys then, the supplier or the demand side? Which one did you manage supply. to supply? For sure. Yeah, it was like a couple of partners that we signed on, on and thanks to them, you know, for, for believing in us. They're like, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll we'll try you out uh, because if you don't have more than one network, then wow. it's useless, right? Because the whole point of it is aggregation. So yeah, I got the first couple of networks, launched the product with beta customers, uh, refined it, uh, found you know what works, what doesn't work, uh, and then went back to the supply side, got more charge. And when was on. when was this roughly? Kind of, we talking 2019, 2020? Uh, so so basically, we refined the idea of Bonnet right as the pandemic hit so march 2020 elliot and i had like this idea that we yeah exactly that we had like a very clear focus in mind on what we're going to build uh and then the entirety of 2020 was building the product and the supply side so we were out pitching to suppliers building the app and then last year february uh we launched to the first customer which was a taxi driver as a cabbie Nice. Uh, and he was using us religiously, told some of his friends. So basically, we just had a bunch of cabbies charging with us for a couple of months. 
Cool. Uh, and that continued. We just let more and more people use the product, uh, got a bit more suppliers on board as well. And then finally, in sort of July of last year, we launched to the general public when we felt like the proposition worked, people were enjoying it, cars were charging, and um, we got some more people on board as well uh, into the company. One thing I understand about marketplaces is that they typically require big marketing spends to scale supply and demand proportionally. Have you found that to be the case? And how did you, if you did find that to be the case, how did you manage to do that prior to getting investment, which we'll talk about later? <laughs> that is true. Uh, depend. I think it depends on a type of marketplace. So to date, Bonnet did not spend probably more than 5,000 pounds cumulatively on marketing uh, because our supply is... It's, it's kind of different because their supply is not necessarily uh, super segregated like the restaurant business, right? There's like yeah. thousands and thousands of restaurants or like thousands of hotels. So when you're trying to aggregate that or Airbnb, right? Thousands of apartments. Yeah, you can't be doing sales to these guys. It has to be inbound. For us, actually, it's better because our supply set is somewhat segregated. So it's 50 mm-hmm. to 100 players and it's sales right so you put one person on the job and they can manage 50 accounts no problem and you just pitch and pitch and pitch which was me at first and now we have someone to properly do it and equally for the demand side it is uh, we we said we'd do the same thing we would um focus on fleets so Ah, fleets are you know that was uh that was quite a good hack from our side where we just said you know it's easier to reach a deal with like the fleet manager of Bolt. Uh, and then people would, you know, they just promote it as a channel. Customer acquisition costs are quite minimal. Yeah. And that's what yeah. we did. That's smart. It's very smart because then you just have to get, like you get one fleet and that's equal to X amount of drivers. Exactly. So when when do you foresee this going up to the general public and for there to be kind of, a, when is the hope for there to be like a mass inbound of EV drivers? Because that's what I imagine the pound signs will start to flash <laughs> in your eyes when that happens. Well, look, I mean, it's already hidden off like uh, one out of five cars sold today is an electric vehicle. And I'm not yeah. saying even like a hybrid, like a full battery electric vehicle. It yeah. would be more if they didn't go through these chip shortages right now. I think we already reached the tipping point, like various tipping points in time, in terms of like price parity of cars, in terms of certain cars, um, more charge points or connectors than there are fuel pumps in the UK. So it's all there. And it really is now at the like the base of the hockey stick. Like you already see it going sort of vertical, especially when you look at just car sales. Mm-hmm. You know, like once you're at a point where like in 2021, there's as many cars added as the entire time before that in the UK in terms of electric yeah. vehicles. Yeah. That's the compound growth, you know, that you're looking at. To answer your question is like end of this year, I think it's really going to pop up. Hey. And what's this thing about chip shortages? What's going on there in the industry? I wish I could tell you. I have no idea. Yeah. I just know that a lead time for a Tesla in this country is like 18 months. It's yeah, ridiculous. it's crazy. Oh, wow. it's, it's all, all COVID induced supply supply effects, right? Yeah. I think a lot of companies, a lot of suppliers are just scrambling to kind of get the shit in order after the COVID hit. I mean, it's happening across the across the remit, like furniture, right, okay. home appliances, and obviously cars are big hit as well. I mean, it's not just chip shortage, it's like uh, material shortage as well, food shortages as well. It's a a global problem, yeah, exactly. But no, it's fantastic, Uh, Patrick. I think your your timing is absolutely immaculate because, yeah, as you said, it's like one in five. I thought it was more like one in 10, but if you're saying one in five, kind of, is that newly registered cars in the UK? Um, All battery? Or are you including plug-in hybrids as well? No, so pure 100% electric. That's crazy. Yeah, so what what gave you and Elliot the kind of precedence in... I guess a couple of years before the pandemic to actually go into the EV space, what made you guys look at it and be like, this is where we need to be right now? Several things. Well, first of all, like Siraj, you'll know this and in, in electrical engineering and Imperial, we all had to do master thesis, right? Uh, and yeah. mine just happened coincidentally to be in electric vehicles. So specific, like, I didn't want to do it. You know, when you have to go and find a certain thing to do it in, I was going to be doing it in machine learning or something and yeah. then be cool with the kids. Yeah. Uh, and then you had to select five topics and I yeah. got my last topic. Well. Literally, the, literally <laughs> the one I wanted least. I got the last topic. Less in disguise. Wait, who, yeah. who was uh, who was your thesis supervisor? Was it Sidora? The famous no, no, it was, no, it was Professor Sterbach. Okay. Uh, he did renewable energy. Uh, to be fair, like kudos to him. He's an insane lecturer. Um, he's super, super helpful. But yeah, I was like, I really like renewables, but this one was like, just to focus on whatever. I, I like the professor, so I'll do it. 
And then I did the thesis and the thesis was about like economic feasibility of electric cars and the current like system of the national grid, you know, right. basically modeling, can the national grid survive all the peaks that arise with like people charging peak times and because like charging it in other terms is as much load as uh, a house, right? You're just connecting a new house. So every time you plug in a car, it's like all of a sudden there's a new house that appears in your street that needs electricity. And so that, that kind of... Uh, was my project. Uh, I loved it. And at the end of it, uh, basically all the simulations made it very clear that, you know, it's happening. <laughs> like Economic feasibility, check. It's, yeah. it's going to take off. And so we just started doing stuff around it. I was like, I'm going to do this full time. I don't care. Uh, it looks like a gold mine. So I started, you know, going through the weeds, first designing charge points, doing this and that. Uh, Elliot joined as well because he was super interested. He saw, you know, the, what the thesis was. He saw the numbers. He was like, okay, this is pretty interesting. Uh -huh. And so the goal was just to be part of the industry uh, without any idea of what the industry required to, you know, to be solved. Uh, but at, well, you're just very lucky when you're in an industry that you know is only going to grow. It's a bit like the wild, wild west at first. No one knows like what mm -hmm. standards are going to make it, what type of behaviors people are going to merge towards. But at the end of the day, if you're agile you can mm -hmm. pivot your way through all those different solutions right as long as you're just yeah. in the in the right yeah. industry and then you just kind of make it work did you guys have uh much hardware expertise at that point like because what you what you described from your thesis sound like it was a lot of simulations like software simulations yeah did you did yeah. you have hardware expertise because i remember that's something that i never really touched in university much no well i guess like we had some hardware expertise but it's like from making small microchips and yeah, you know yeah. programming fpgas and whatnot but it wasn't building full size like megawatt not megawatt but like uh, you know hundreds of kilo kilowatt chargers which is what we were set off to do we built an mvp with elliot because we yeah. just so believed in, in the whole hardware idea we built an mvp to for, for like a 150 kilowatt charger Okay. Uh, which was just like on a breadboard. <laughs> so we're like, <laughs> we're like, this is going to do it, right? We just like scaled everything down to like a breadboard. And then we're just kind of like, it's going to work, right? We're just going to like ex ex expand all the ratings. So it's just fine. Did, did it work? Or did you, did, you, <laughs> did, like, you, did you incinerate the breadboard? Dude, but like, it depends what you define as working. Like okay. if you're yeah. connecting like a small LED light at the end and it went yeah. on as in like the car was charging, quote unquote, yeah, that worked. But that was that the point at which you decided to pivot out of hardware. Yeah, so I understand it's, a lot, it's an issue for a lot of kind of first-time tech founders. It's like that you start with the hardware, something you're passionate about, and then you quickly realize now nah, software, software is where it's at. I can't scale this. It's going to be very hard to manufacture, to deliver, etc. Yeah, to be honest, it became quite apparent after that that you know we spent like two months researching and, yeah. and all we came up with is <laughs> breadboard it's like this is our charge and like what are you going to do at that point you're not going to use that breadboard to go to an investor and pitch it being like hey just imagine that this eight by eight centimeter piece of breadboard is going to be this like super slick charge point that we drew uh -huh. in photoshop yeah. um and equally you're not gonna have the like 50 grand required to build the like charge point you want but i will say that anything related in climate tech requires hardware like all the vcs who call themselves climate vcs and then just invest in just i don't know api apis for like carbon offsetting and that's it yeah yeah it's like somewhat climate related like it is climate related but in terms of the impact it has yeah it's not nowhere close to just investing in like partially more efficient solar panels at the end of the day yeah um so really want... right absolutely yeah so it's about super to... difficult, yeah, but like yeah. You sh I think you should be putting money to hardware as well as a VC. You should yeah. be putting money into the hardest problems as well because people just, yeah. particularly in climate, I've noticed people tend to just kind of follow the HUD. Oh, we're doing this kind of optimization on this or we're trying to get green hydrogen to work properly or trying to scale it up. Instead of actually trying to go after the really hard problems and just throw money into there because, of course, you know, we all know the way that financial institutions work, particularly venture capital, they need to see a return. They're not willing to yeah. put money in for that 10, 20 years for an uncertain outcome. Yeah. yeah. Those technologies as well are kind of, they're like the big obstacles in the path of exponential growth. Like once these big problems are yeah. solved, then it opens it opens the floodgates of what's possible. Yeah. Like many it's a super, like, yeah, I mean, I don't blame them. It's like super difficult to vet these types of companies, right? If someone comes up to you uh, and says, I found this like super efficient way to mine lithium, which is, you know, 
50% more green or, or whatever it might be. Yeah. Like doing your background research on that topic is just difficult as is. And just like understanding what type of financing has to go into it. Plus the team that brought you the idea probably are not very uh, salesy, right? They're not like found, yeah. your typical like founder, charismatic yeah. kind of person. They're most yeah. likely researchers from a lab. Yeah. So I, I see how it's like super, super difficult to convince yourself to, to do a hardware play. But yeah. I think if you, if you do want to make like super, super cash, <laughs> you're going to make it off of hardware at some if point. you have the patience, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You can pull it off. I think the other other thing you mentioned about the classic researcher engineer personality as opposed to the entrepreneurial founder personality is that I feel it's like that psychological law I forgot what it's called now something Dobbs law um, where it's like the smarter you are the less you realize you know like the more incompetent you are the better you feel you are at something so I remember a lot of our our friends and people that we went to college with right. They very skeptical people, rightly so, because being a good engineer or being a good scientist requires a, a high level of skepticism and cynicism that something's going to work and the attempt to break it. Actually, the law, as mentioned, was the Dunning-Kruger effect. Um, I noticed that they were so skeptical that things would work that they're even skeptical in their own belief of making them work. So they'd be like, OK, this is, it could be possible, but it's so unlikely that you'll make it happen. Even I remember talking to a couple of guys we went to college, college with probably wouldn't be right to, to name them by name, <laughs> but, but like they were like, yeah, I would start a business, but I just don't think it's realistic. I don't think it's going to happen. Like realistically, there's so much competition out there. So many ways you can fail. It's a big risk. And at the same skepticism and cynicism that helped them achieve so much in a scientific domain happens to be a limitation in the, in the business domain. Did you find that when you were first setting out that that skepticism came into play in any way in your own thinking? And if so, how did, how did you how did you build the optimism that this is going to work and I'm going to make it work? Or is that, has that always been contained within your personality? No, I'm, I'm not that smart to be skeptical about things. So that's, <laughs> that's probably why I was probably you no know, more on the, on the one side of the spectrum. But you, no, I mean, you, you and me alike. I think we were <laughs> the same in that regard. You know exactly, right? How, yeah. how our how in our course you really had that spectrum right and yeah. <laughs> you and i were not i don't, on, well, I don't know what uh, spectrum you're talking about but <laughs> <laughs> dude no i'm just optimistic about stuff that's it um i really uh which for better for well it's as good as it is bad it's just like having a high risk tolerance in general and just being like of course super privileged to being able to do to take that risk um, I, it's not like i was gonna become homeless all of a sudden so i had that going for me and i realized if i have that going for me you're already in a better position than like 99 of the population so it's just a complete waste if you don't take the leap right yeah. so it's uh sure. that, that was sort of my thinking and most importantly i should also say that when i looked at it and i thought about because obviously the the counter argument is always I'm going to go work for X Y Z for a couple of years, make some cash, and then start my own business, right? Or I guess gain some experience, like make make my CV nice, and then I'm going to go solo. Yeah. Uh, I realize that is actually probably not the right way to look at things because your responsibilities only add up over the years, right? right. So when you're fresh out of university, from that point onwards, you're only going to increase dependence right on yourself like you're going to get a girlfriend a dog kids wife whatever it might be and uh equally i don't know maybe you'll have to move somewhere you're required to be at work you're yeah. all of a sudden like this like yeah. professional in the thing that you do so it's actually going to be a lot more difficult i think um to step away from that in like three four or five years yeah. than it is to just like try it out straight after university when you literally have nothing to lose at that point i think as well like something that i've witnessed and experienced myself and i know sir has as well is that the longer you stay in these kind of corporate type jobs the more your mentality shifts as well so yes you may have external dependencies but i've seen it happen with co-workers as well as you get into kind of your mid to late 20s you very much have this kind of stable grinding mindset of this wheel keeps on churning and it's very hard to get off that wheel because you're so comfortable to the lifestyle that you have acquired. I mean, you may not have a girlfriend, you may not have any dependencies, but internally in your mind, you're very comfortable. You're very used to a certain lifestyle. It comes a very hard habit to kind of erase. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm, you're very lucky you didn't fall into that trap because a lot of us <laughs> are still there struggling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, that's, uh, it's a weird one because it's also the case that most successful entrepreneurs are people who are a bit older, 
for people like you, you, you always see the stories of Mark Zuckerberg uh, at all. But if you just look at the statistics, yeah. the chances of you making a unicorn of a company are quite significantly higher if you're in your 30s, for instance. Yeah, so it's kind of like experience a, on the about, yeah. I, I, I know it VC, is a mixed bag. I know a lot of VCs, like I know there are some actually kind of shops out there that will only look at founders when it's their second or third business. Because said you've you've tried and you've failed multiple times before. Therefore, you know you have what it takes. You're not some starry-eyed 21, 22 year old. You actually have experience under your belt. Yeah. yeah, I can I can empirically attest to that. That was definitely something that was a frequent conversation when I worked in VC. Like sometimes you'd have a great deck, you have a great proposition, but then you'd have this uh, pre-money valuation, which was very high, and this really high amount of money that you wanted to raise. And then my managers would kind of be like, nah, they're too, they're too young. That's, that it should, that, that's displayed. Their inexperience is displayed in the amount of money they're trying to raise at this stage. Well, I think that's also a difference in mentality across the world. Because in America, that's a much more commonality yeah. for people to raise much higher ticket sizes. Increasing as well, right? Yeah. It's increasing as time goes on. And it's, it's even encouraged to dream bigger. It's like, why do you want to raise so little money? You should raise more and really try to make this thing go to the moon. Whereas in the UK, people are a lot more conservative with their money and how much they're willing to invest and at what stage and what kind of proof. The, the, the fund I worked at certainly was, was in that uh, ballpark. They really looked for well-established businesses, healthy revenue streams, good AR, good businesses that wanted to just grow and expand. And the, the rate of expansion was usually quite uh, good, but like not, not, not like exponential. Was it, was it quite late stage? Yeah. Nah, they're looking for the sort of series between seed and series a there was ideally like bridging capital between seed and series a okay was it like a tax efficiency fund in the sense uh, yes, that yeah okay. yeah yes okay. exactly uh-huh. exactly so it was, it was like a they describe themselves as a quasi angel syndicate so you got a portfolio team that looks after the companies and finds new potential investments and then you have all these angel investors that come in once a week and then see if they like the businesses that are shown to them if they do then then the portfolio team goes away and uh, structures the investment for the money to come through. Yeah, well, I mean, like, as with anything, right, it's a very simple formula where you have risk and then you have return. <laughs> like, yeah. One of the first rules you learn if you go into finance. And uh, yeah, I mean, if, if you're not high risk tolerance, then uh, your returns are going to be iffy. Yeah. Both, both sides have their benefits, uh, I guess, because at the same time, you know, yeah, great, everything's bigger and better in the US. Uh, yeah. And you always hear the success stories, but you don't hear that, you know, for instance, like the S&P 500 has been outperforming any hedge fund, not any hedge fund, but the average hedge fund hedge for like 10 years straight. Exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay. So it doesn't matter that you have Uber in your portfolio. <laughs> if the average IRR of your portfolio is less than the S&P 500, which is systematically growing at 10% year, yearly, right? It's always, it's always a tough one with the kind of financial institutions um, because you'll get kind of a lot of small troughs and then, you know, maybe one big peak, one big peak performance that might hide historically poor performance. So when you average that over kind of the course of many years, it looks like they're doing all right, but you're not accounting for kind of all the failures you have, right? And it's a classic 80-20 rule, particularly when it comes to VC as well, uh, that 80% of your gains are made by 20% of your portfolio. And you're just looking for that one company that's going to really take you to the moon, right? Yeah. And that's if you're lucky. I think you have to be a, a very specific VC uh, with very good connections to get super crazy deal flow of that. You know, when the next Mark Zuckerberg pops yeah, up, that absolutely. you know when he's raising his, his seed round, essentially, or her seed round, right? So, yeah. Um, James, what you described actually in VC is known as the, ba- the Babe Ruth effect. It's where I think this guy, Babe Ruth, he used to miss most of his shots and every now and then he'd hit what, a huge home run completely out of the park and then they win, they win the game or something like that. But exact, exactly right that. It's like 80% of the companies you, or 90, 95% of companies you invest in as a VC will completely fail and be duds. But then those 5% that do well, you're banking on Absolutely. 100x, 200x or whatever. And then that then gives you like, I don't know, 10% rate of return over 10 years. And that's, yeah. that's kind of the business model. But then when you look at it, the standard deviations of returns across VC firms are very high. You know, the max, the max, the max is like, yeah, it's pretty good. It's probably the best in the industry of finance, but the standard deviation is, is, uh, is also the highest uh, I would imagine. Yeah. Well, I think, I, I think it's kind of like the showbiz, right? <laughs> like the chances of making it in VC are very, very slim. Like, yeah, sure. You can build it. Like you can gather maybe like a hundred million 
compound fund and do early stage. But will you do the second, the third, the fourth fund after that and show IRR that's, you know, consistent, you know, 4X or whatever it is in VCs? A big question mark. I don't know. because it's It depends. I think if you want to be the VC that has these like crazy funds that where you invest early, you know, 2880, like one company makes it really, really big. You have to basically, from what I saw, like the good VCs that I speak to, the guys don't bother with like revenue or like margins when you're raising your seed round. They don't care. They don't even care what you do as a business most of the time. All they need to know is like roughly what it is. Yeah. And then they completely look at you as a person. That's that's the only good indicator uh, whether or not that company will succeed. Or not good, but it's like the only uh, indicator you have, right? No matter what your numbers are saying, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Or you then get at, uh, get in on like Series C, where you're going to buy it a lot more, uh, your stake for a lot more money. But yeah. then you, you have the sort of background of looking at the numbers and understanding the business. And it's a much safer bet. It's a really good point, actually, because I've heard VCs describe it as you're making a bet on the person when it's a seed stake, mm-hmm. right? You're betting on the person or the company. So with your recent funding round, congratulations again. What do you think mm-hmm. the VCs saw in you? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Profound. <laughs> Just, like, it's like I, I to this day, I have no idea what they found us. <laughs> I don't know. I think we're. It's always a lot of luck mixed into it. We we raised the round when the markets were at, were at a peak. You know, capital is being deployed left, right, and center. The EV industry is almost like EVs are a buzzword. You know, Tesla reaching trillion market cap. All of those accumulated. Um, but as well, uh, we. Uh, the way Elliot and I sort of, the way we pitched it, I, I think was very different from any of our competitors or anyone in, in the industry in general, is we, coming from an electrical engineering background, we focus on the kilowatt hour. So like what can be done long-term? How can you drill down the value chain of the kilowatt hour and, you know, basically not generate it, but everything up until generation, you can make some really cool stuff with. So uh, demand response, energy balancing, all of that crazy stuff. And that's what the vision is in like 10 years time. It's not just charging cars. It's everything that happens in the background of charging cars. So I'm ensuring that the energy can be green, ensuring that the margins are super stable and high and, you know, the, the national grid is, is uh, secure and there aren't any outages and stuff like that, as opposed to just making it an app on your phone. I guess that was a big, and, and we, we knew what we were talking about because we have the experience in academia um, to, to sort of make that. I guess that was a big factor. What did you mean about the all the things that go in the background? Could you talk a bit more about that? Like what's what happens in the background? Yeah, well, look, I mean, charging cars is 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 one thing, but there is like a humongous amount of problems that that comes with it, because as I said, um, car charging is in house on the national grid. So then that's okay because that's a slow charger. Now you put a rapid charger that's supposed to charge like a Tesla in 30 minutes or like a Porsche Taycan with a huge battery in 30 minutes. The amount of current it draws is like crazy. And you'll know this, Raj, right? It's just like, and you can't put like five of these things on a street, A, because they're ugly and huge, and B, because they're, the amount of like electricity they draw is basically the national grid can't cope. So then you have to reinforce the grid in that place, meaning that you have to put like transformers or generators or like put in thicker cables. And all of that can be avoided if you're smart about how you charge the cars. And that's what we're sort of getting at is like by having all the charge points uh, connected to our platform and by having all the drivers on our platform, the data element and the charging behavior and all of that stuff is crucial to making sure that you don't have to have that rapid charger standing on the street, right? You just can be super smart about how and when you charge those cars. So just scheduling the charge overnight rather than everyone charging at from 5 to 12 p.m. Okay. We, you can plug in the car, but Bonnet won't start charging it until midnight to 4 a.m. when the, there isn't such a peak demand in the yeah. grid. And it's such easy wins along the way that you can do if you have all of that data that saves so much costs in general for you know everyone involved. So ingrained within this charge wrap in the background is a data analysis and analytics piece where it's actually analyzing the optimal times to charge and creating intelligible suggestions to its users. Yeah, I mean, data is like our biggest cash prize at the end, right? Like the data is what we're building up. 
everything else is like a means to an end almost uh, because the most valuable piece is just the data information wow okay i feel like i understand the idea a lot, a lot better now you've kind of <laughs> it's like a trojan horse right it's like you, yeah. it looks like this but on the inside it's just a data play and how and how do you feel how do you see the kind of future of energy production are you kind of a green hydrogen supporter are you more of a solar and wind supporter in terms of the renewable uh, you think it's a mixture uh, of the two yeah it's, it's always it's always a mix it's like the boring answer it's like it depends right <laughs> uh no but it's uh it's not one silver bullet it's you have to explore a bunch of different sources of electricity generation uh some is cheap some are cheaper in certain parts of the world some are cheaper in other parts uh, just because you know it doesn't make sense to build like a hydro dam if you only have like one river in your entire country right like if you're in, in saudi for instance or when, if you're in russia what's the point of putting solar panels if the sun doesn't shine 80 percent of the year so yeah complete mix and i think it's going to be a lot more cooler tech out there as well uh in terms of electricity generation you you, you can be super creative about how you generate electrons um and there's a lot of smart people out there who will make it possible in the next couple of years lot to look yeah. forward to Exactly. No, right. I was going to say that you you guys should focus on it. Uh, if I go into electricity, look, the other thing is with, with VCs I've been speaking to recently, um, they're like, well, there's two industries where you can really still place your bets without sounding completely obnoxious. And one of them, not even so much, it's uh, climate tech and uh, Web 3.0. And Web 3.0, of course, is becoming less and less attractive. But realistically, those are the two main things that VCs can still place bets on uh, without sounding completely like outlandish or whatever. No, I mean, you just look at the kind of number of new climate funds in the last, yeah. I think, just like pandemic-induced effects, kind of tailwinds, putting emphasis on people care a lot more about sustainability now, various world issues like kind of climate change being brought to the front. Yeah, I think it's very... To get in now is the perfect time. Anyone listening, anyone with a relevant <laughs> get in now. I was reading as well, and some senior individual in an asset management firm, I'm not sure which one, I saw it on LinkedIn. They were saying that having a climate mandate went from being a nice to have and kind of attractive thing to investors to an absolute must have today. So it's it's definitely industry-wide across financial industry that you know the money is going into things that positively benefit the climate. Yeah, because it's like, it's so nice because at the end of the day, if your fund doesn't succeed for whatever reason, right, or the companies, certain companies in your fund don't succeed or projects, doesn't matter. What's the worst that happened? You just, you know, pushed R&D for unfucking the planet, you know, that much further with your money. And it's, it's everyone is a winner, even if stuff fails. Whereas if you're investing into companies that create a new, something that's useless, you know, I don't know, just like Game a new... Yeah, exactly. Like the new yeah. Candy Crush 2.0 that's like three times more addictive. Like, come on, dude. What what are you doing? <laughs> Making money, fails, make it serious well. money. That's what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know how deep you go, Patrick, into kind of battery technology, um, but you just referenced kind of making lithium like cheaper and this and that. How do you feel about maybe some of the newer emerging technologies such as using sodium in the place of lithium in batteries or kind of this 10-year-plus plan we have towards solid-state batteries. I was wondering if you had like a view on timelines or what you think is going to win out. I am unfortunately not super qualified on that matter, but like what I will say is that we've reached a certain plateau with batteries, uh, the way they are currently manufactured and put into cars, yeah. where, like the plateau in terms of range, yeah. right? So you had improvements and like you had these like 300, 400-mile ranges come up, and now all of a sudden it's like very flat. Because you reached a point where just adding more cells into the battery yeah. uh, will make it marginally heavier and therefore less uh, have less drivable, have less range than the range that those extra cells add. If that makes sense. I think we like um, Tesla's. We're getting like six fifty now, if I'm not mistaken. I think kilometers, that... right, or miles? I have no idea to be honest, but I think like Tesla's. I'd be surprised if it does 650 miles because that's like almost a thousand kilometers. But anyway, I th it doesn't matter really. Whatever the number is, it's somewhere in that range. And not you don't have to go any further because like when you fuel your car, right, you get like 600 kilometers of range depending on the car or something. But I mean, um, in, the, in the next few years, we would hope to at least surpass that kind of limitation of petrol, no? I think that's probably the next step we need to look at is like how can we not only meet what petrol diesel cars can achieve but actually surpass it and quite significantly so 
but like i guess like the question is then what's the point of like surpassing it like technically it's never like how how often do you as a person realistically travel unless you're a truck right that makes total sense you want to reduce like uh dwell time when you're not on the road delivering the, the whatever you have but as a like normal consumer or normal driver I think it's like the statistic is like 90% of all trips you make. No, sorry. 90% of car crashes happen within a 10 mile radius from where you live. If you were in a car crash, the chances are 90% that it happened within a 10 mile radius. And everyone goes crazy about the statistics. Holy shit. Like, how is that possible? That it's always so close to home. Like mm. being close to home is the most dangerous place to be. No, the, like the truth is that it's because no one ventures outside of those 10 miles ever. <laughs> like that's the reason you're just super likely to be within those 10 miles. Yeah. And that's where the crash happens. Cause like, when was the last time you ventured out further than 10 miles away from your home? It was actually really, really, yeah. So having cars with like 3000 kilometers range it's great. I think it really is like a great achievement, R&D, whatever. But it's also kind of useless at that point. Mm. Like you'd yeah. probably be better off focusing on something else. Yeah. They're more from the perspective of kind of battery technology allowing greater energy storage, which I mean, you just literally have to charge your car. Oh, yeah. I mean, purely from that perspective. But I agree with you that after a certain distance, there would be diminishing returns. No, that's absolutely true. I think making them more efficient, 100%. So yeah. just like you need to use less lithium for the same amount of range. That's like, that, that is yeah, a very absolutely. wise way to, yeah. Okay. Or some other material, right? Yeah. Yeah, or some other material, yeah. Patrick, I got a fun question for you. The first thing that comes to mind, right? What's your dream car? Uh, Taycan. Yeah, are, you, are you a Porsche man in general? Uh, no, I have to say, because um, Porsche is on our cap table. So. <laughs> 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 I can't say anything. Just like a, no, I'm kidding. But also the back, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I was hoping to catch you out. You say some sort of the old school American muscle car, extremely fuel inefficient, <laughs> just just burn, burns himself on live media. Nah, nah. Dude, I I I I did that in the past and I learned my lessons. So it's <laughs> not the first time. I think I was like it, oh, it was so bad. I was like at a it was like a panel somewhere oh. like literally like an ev panel and then they asked me what what do i what's my dream car and i was like uh, i don't know what i said but it was like some like seven like a testarossa from the 80s oh, that was beautiful. <laughs> like shit like what was their uh, response i'm sure that wasn't uh taken very well dude yeah i mean whatever it the thing is like no one's uh hate there's no reason to hate petrol cars right and especially like when it comes to your dream car you don't have to drive it especially with a test rusty you'll be taking it out for a spin once a for, for like once a month top but um yeah no the Taycan's sick just because i really like the way it looks um have you driven one no have you i've sat in one at a show but i'm not having actually test driven I'm one sure right uh, i'm sure you've driven an electric vehicle before many times yeah how do you feel about it because i only recently started driving electric vehicles um, just renting them out and driving them and just the difference in power. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The way that thing takes off. I mean, we're talking like a Vauxhall Astra, just your bog standard hatchback and that thing takes off like a rocket. Christ can attest as he's been in the passenger seat most times. <laughs> That's crazy. Well, you you guys tell me, well, how'd you think? I had the, what was the experience like? Did you like it? It's, it's almost, I mean, when he's driving, it's like a roller coaster. <laughs> it's almost ethereal, Patrick. As someone who's been driving kind of like seven, eight years, it's, it's just a whole different way of viewing the car because, you know, you're used to that kind of, in, in your typical car that isn't the supercar, you're used to that kind of like delay when you hit the accelerator and this and that, especially if it's an automatic, if it's maybe it's a man, you can get more of that. But the feeling of putting down your foot on the accelerator and that thing taking off and you blink and you're at 30 miles an hour, 40 miles an hour, it's crazy, right? Um, and so that's the best point. way to give Siraj a whiplash, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, believe me, I've been making a list of the best ways to injure him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's actually, man, as someone who's like a very, like a car guy myself, it was actually that moment that I first stepped in an EV. I drove it myself that sold me on the idea. Like, obviously, you see the numbers and you can see that it's the future. But it was that point where I was like, I actually want to own one of these things. Like, if I were to get, if I were to buy a car now, ninety percent sure it would be an EV. Yeah, dude. I mean, it's it's tough not to make an EV in London, at least, because you have the congestion charge, which is you yeah. know, 15 quid. And you're like, OK, granted, I don't have to enter like central London ever on a daily basis. Right. So but then you have ultra low emission zones. And then you find out stuff like when you have an electric car and you go to certain boroughs to park, 
where it usually would cost you like three quid an hour or four quid an hour, let's say. For an electric car, it's like 20 pence wow. per hour. It's ridiculous. And like the fueling costs of an electric car, like 100 miles in the electric car that I drive, which is a Honda E, 100 miles costs me like sub six quid. It's like five pound 50. That's crazy. I don't know if you ever use Zipcar and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start mentioning Zipcar and all our podcasts until they sponsor us. Um, because, <laughs> I know Zipcar, dude. So I, I can, I can uh, yeah. intro you to it. Yeah. You know, you know guys at Zipcar? Yeah, we work with them. Fantastic. Oh, let's wow. make the introduction, big man. Appreciate <laughs> yeah, that. <dude>. Yeah, <laughs> you are. After this, let's go. Oh, he's yeah, no responsible problem. for 25% of the Zipcar revenue. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> mo- mo- mostly in traffic violation fees. <laughs> oh my gosh yeah, oh go man to, when you go into that office you got a picture of me in the door <laughs> yeah just like most wanted right yeah nah, but glory of the month what are you talking about <laughs> customer of the month oh man patrick if you had to prioritize one thing for bonnet over the next year what would that be uh number of charge points we offer so more percent supply side yeah 100 percent. can you give us an idea it's, the number you serve now currently uh, we have like 5,000 charge points in the UK. Nice. Um, how many how many charge points in the UK are there in total? Uh, well, look, there's probably like 30,000. Yeah. But like uh, public. So these are just public. There's probably another 300,000 in home charge points. And there's 30,000, but like realistically, five to 10 of them are com- uh, not completely. Like they're usable, but they're just like glorified sockets. They're like the first iteration of charge point, which, you know, came into play 10 years ago. They don't have any backend communication systems, so we physically can't onboard them onto the platform. They're just like you know ballers that stand there, and that's it on free vent. But having said that, uh, I don't know. This year we're probably, I think we're increasing it quite rapidly. The charge point count, uh, from what I remember, it's like ten percent last year was the increase, if not more. Yeah, uh, it's getting there. I was going to ask about Zipcar because you said Zipcar some something or other, and then you you never finished your sentence about uh, why you wanted to to keep on mentioning Zipcar because you mentioned Zipcar and like I'm going to keep on mentioning Zipcar to, to, to get them to sponsor our podcast, of course. Oh, okay. <laughs> you, you literally just names dropped it for the sake. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you give us too much credit for being intellectuals, Patrick. <laughs> We're not as smart as we look. Well, we don't look that smart, really, to be honest. So don't even so much <laughs> But tell me this then. So when you when you first started selling to the suppliers, it was you doing the sales, right? You were the guy. Um, when did you hire your first sales reps? And then what's it been like now kind of delegating responsibility to new hires? How have you found that process? Because that's a skill that we would have never really had in university or learned along yeah. the way, right? So what's that been like? Well, uh, we hired the we hired the first people last year this time last year we're sort of the first like proper employees but the first sales people came in two months ago okay um, so like for a very long time i kept on doing it that's by far the most difficult uh learning curve or whatever you want to call it when you move from just like a founder that just did everything right you just worked you just like built stuff and you just got it uh to work to now being essentially like a manager which is a completely different role because at the, what you now sort of have to do is rather than, okay, what's my workflow? How do I work on this and that and get it done? Mm. It's how do I ensure that other people don't have bottlenecks in their work? How yep. do I like manage just like that everyone's as efficient as possible, which is a very weird uh, shift, but it's for the better always, right? You have to do it anyway yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because that, that's the only thing that's scalable. You can't just keep on doing stuff yourself. We spoke about uh, with another one of our guests on the podcast that when you first start a business, you're like the vision, the visionary. You come in with this idea and you're, you're the one that kind of makes it happen and inspires the people you're around. Then once you kind of grow to a certain level, you become the, the manager, the person to oversee things. And then as that process continuously grows and the business grows along with it, you then become the executive. The sort of, you know, you're really out of touch of what actually happens day to day in the business, but you oversee the numbers, the finances, you make, you make strategic moves rather than operational moves. No, absolutely. And the one thing I'd add is like, you never stop being the visionary because you always like need to have the vision to, yeah. towards everyone's sort of like running towards. But yeah, I agree with that 100%. Also, I'm, I'm curious from my own perspective, what language, programming language is the product built in? So the we have two the two apps on Android and uh, iOS are native. So Swift and Kotlin. 
Okay. We the stack that we use used to be when we started off was a merge stack, which is like MongoDB as your database, Express servers, uh, well React for the dashboards that we used, and then um, Node. So basically, look, look, the entire backend is effectively JavaScript slash TypeScript at this point. Uh, two native apps, and that's about it. And then the dashboards are in React. Any Python for the data and analytics? Uh, well, now more so we have a data analyst coming in. It's the first time we have proper data people uh, in the team. So it's, yeah, uh, MySQL and uh, Python. Oh, so. get, get me on. Let's <laughs> <laughs> just get it. What do you, what do you actually use? Because uh, you're a quant now. Is it oh, Python mostly? All, all Python, yeah. yeah. My, la my last role was a bit of C++, but I, I left before I could do any C++. <laughs> no maybe those things are related because that was the thing I was, I was most unsure about man because in uni like well in imperial i didn't really know shit to be honest i think i just uh, tried to copy other people's work half the time <laughs> but then when i my final year i was like okay yeah, i need to actually earn my degree i can't just you know uh -uh. you know coast my way through the whole thing and then i realized hey this python stuff's quite cool yeah, so I think all most of predominantly most of my programming experience is in MATLAB or Python. But then I'd say in the last two years, my Python skills kind of started to go to go. I mean, I'm not gonna say I'm anything special at Python, but I got a good intermediate grasp of the language to the point where I can facilitate my own learning forward. So well, hey, dude, if you're you're a quant at a, at a prestigious firm, right? So <laughs> you you have to kind of either you're you're gonna learn how to swim or you're gonna drown. So. Exactly, exactly, exactly. At the moment, I got the armbands on, but I'm I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right, staying above water. Yeah, that's cool. Patrick, you've had um actually a quite a quick acceleration though recently. What would you say is your current long term goal? Kind of a moment where you and your co-founder Elliot could be like, yeah, we've made it. Would that be kind of an IPO or are you not looking that far ahead? Do you kind of live day by day? No, we do, no, we do look quite far ahead. We the Behind Bonnet is this crazy idea that we're going to become the first Gigacorn, which if Elliot was here, he'd kill me for saying it because he hates any derivative of the term unicorn into like various corns. It's, like, it's super <laughs> cheesy. Um, but Gigacorns... Uh, as you, you guys might know what it is, but it's essentially companies that save one gigaton of CO2 uh, emissions, which wow. is, it sounds fine, but like to put it into perspective, like the world produces between 30 and 40 gigatons a year. Overall, like yearly emissions of the globe is 30 and 40. And you're basically saying that, you know, a 30th to 40th of the emissions you're going to save with one company. Uh, huge. which I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge achievement. Um, and no one's done it in the past, well, properly, but it can be done if, if there is a business that can do it in quick, in as quick of a time frame as we want it to happen, it'd be a business like ours, just because even though <laughs> I said hardware is there to, you know, save, uh, save the climate, software just grows a lot quicker. Yeah. So I think that's, yeah. That's so what was it, What was that term? Gigacorn. Gigacorn. Let me get yeah, it. one gig gets on. Jamie, Jamie, pull that up. <laughs> yeah. No, but you know from the Joe Rogan experience. This is crazy. So how so can you break down? I think it'll probably quite be quite clear to listeners how hardware could do that, how hardware could achieve a gigacord status. How would you do it purely with software? So it's kind of like the the analogy that's close to it is just like the taps in your homes that you, where you turn water on and off from. So yeah. basically, if you so bonnet, like if you imagine all the charging points are just taps for electricity, and bonnet essentially just connects to all of those taps and essentially controls the electricity that flows in and out of it, um, ensures that it's green, blah blah blah, smart charging, uh, etc. Then you're in a pretty good position to just ensure that the miles, the kilometers consumed for by people getting from A to B uh, are always green. So it's like, it's like it's consumer behavior kind of nudging a little bit, kind of yeah. efficient consumer behavior, I see, yeah. Rather than, yeah. So, yeah. The, the goal, I mean, look, the goal is just to be everywhere. I think that's the short answer to it. It's like the only way you can save a 30th of the world's CO2 emissions is you have to be like blanket covering where the, everything where they can possibly come from. Thankfully, transport is one of the largest contributors to um, CO2 emissions worldwide. So by being in the transport industry, which we are, and by um, having the possibility to really grow across the globe 
quickly, which any software play can technically, but ours as a marketplace even more so because network effect, et cetera, et cetera. If those two conditions are satisfied, you can then, um, probably there's more conditions that I'm not thinking of, but that's those are the two basic ones that need to be satisfied for you to save that quantity of CO2 because it's a huge quantity. Uh, you can do it out of one country. You can't do it um, with purely hardware, I guess. Do you have generally plans for kind of expanding into new countries or is it simply we're going to take the UK and then look further? No, 100%. So we already are uh, opening shop in five geographies. So Sweden, Spain, Germany, oh. France and the Netherlands. And I assume yeah. it's all countries with kind of EV infrastructure to the same level of the UK's? Or uh, yes and no. Like France, France and Germany are similar. Uh, Sweden probably as well if you look at a per capita basis. Spain is is one of those markets where we're just placing a, a bet. Really, we just want to see like it's, it's like probably two years behind, three years, uh, and you just we just want to see how different it's going to be. Nice. All right, man. Thanks for talking to us. To finish off, awesome. We do a we have a little fun thing at the end where we throw some quick fire questions and you got to answer them as uh, the first thing that comes to your mind, right? Yeah, Patrick, what's the kindest thing that anyone's done for you personally? In the business world or just like in, in life? life? In, in life. life, yeah, yeah. Oh, shit, wow. Just anything that's, uh, oh, it's going to be a boring answer. Anything where it's a selfless gesture where people just do it for the sake of, of providing you happiness and there's nothing in it for them. So mostly like someone cooking you like a nice meal, like your mom, right? Just for the sake of cooking you a nice meal or awesome. your girlfriend making like a surprise for you. A boring answer, but yeah. uh, it was a lot about your character. You're a very down to earth individual, definitely. Thanks. We, we see we're not just podcasters, we're psychoanalysts as well. <laughs> I knew it, dude. It's like I've been to therapy. I'm going to walk out of here, and be like clear mind on things, and just like start, start yeah, well, seeing things in like 7D. Till you get the invoice, it'll be an 8,000 pound zip car bill. Nice. Just yeah, pass pass on all of your zip card debt over to me. Just like, send all of those uh, checks. Oh, you're not ready for that. <laughs> you're not ready for that. What was the first word that comes to your mind when I say the word passion? Fruit. Passion fruit. Love it. <laughs> what, what would the title of your autobiography be called, Patrick? Oh, dude, that's uh, it's the okay. I'm gonna say the title first, and then backstory as to why that title. Uh, <laughs> the history of a legend. Or so back to what you were saying, like I'm super well, down to earth, right? Very down to earth, more like the king of modesty. <laughs> yeah, right. No, but there's a background as to why that is. So when I was interviewing at BCG, right? So I was a management consulting after I like I was doing an internship. I read that one of the questions that they ask in an interview is, "What's the title of your autobiography?" And so I practiced those, you know, questions, and then going into the interview, I came up with the answer the history of a legend like literally i thought that i'm gonna break down the interviewer with humor i was just gonna say that and that's gonna win him over because you know he'll think i'm funny or something and then i'm in there and the dude interviewing me is this like german dude who's never smiled in his life yeah. and i still decide to pull through with it and he's like what would the and he just asked me that question and i was like wow what a coincidence that i read it on glassdoor and it pops up yeah. And he's like, what would be the story of your autobiography? And I said, the history of a legend. And the dude, I shit you not, doesn't even like break a smile. Like he doesn't acknowledge what I said. He just like, like frowns at me, doesn't say a word, and then just moves straight on to the next question. So you got the job or... I did, I did, yeah. but, only because, but only because I had like another three interviews after that with different people. I'm sure the guy just wrote me up as like unhirable. Oh my God. Um, Wow. Yeah, it was super awkward and never do that in an interview. <laughs> it's one thing to take away from it. All right, mate. If you had to pick an animal to best describe your personality, what would it be? Uh, dog. A dog. Why? Uh, I don't know, because they're optimistic about things. I think I'm very optimistic, so dog. Yeah, and I'd really like someone, like, I really like to live in a world where I can just shit on a pavement and someone picks it up for me. Like, it's the <laughs> ultimate, like, alpha move, you know? Yeah. Um, well, that's a metaphor, but with, 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 people, <laughs> when people do selfless things, you know, the pavement. That's a good life. Duality of personality, fantastic. <laughs> no, but dogs are cool. You know, it's uh, 
they're they're great animals i do think that out of all the species out there they did the most to sort of um they, they did the thing where it's like if you can't beat the humans you join them uh-huh. right so just like they they became super cute and started like following commands and now they have the best lifestyle out of any species out there besides humans right they're like chilling at home uh, in in warm quarters etc while their uh, other species were just like running around the savannah scavenging for food and these guys just get it on a plate served to them three times a day it's really interesting actually maybe a conversation for another time but how we've inherited an earth where essentially humans in the past have decided which animals to care for and which animals to slaughter eat to basically shit on right i think it's actually a fascinating topic but obviously no one for today Uh, but maybe you and Sorais can take your dog conversation offline since he's a (laughs) fan Uh, canines that's true absolutely are you actually Uh, i prefer wolves than dogs but you know each to their own (laughs) patrick one last one what is one sentence of advice that you would give to first-time founders uh just do it nike uh, slogan no but yeah phil knight if you're listening we can get that sponsor as well right (laughs) (laughs) no it's uh yeah just pull through with it um if you you just stick to it something's got to give and you got to break through if there's no other option awesome well listen Fantastic. patrick mate absolutely great speaking to you again it's very refreshing to see you thanks after. for having me guys yeah we should, we should meet up offline definitely get some of the guys together hang yeah. out it's been too long it has been but yeah. take care of yourself and all the best with bonnet i wish you wish you all the success man cheers patrick. thanks guys you too with this as well thanks for having me and uh yeah i'll, I'll, I'll follow i'll start listening now yeah, absolutely. anytime. It's well, a pleasure. Thanks a lot, man. Cheers. See you later, man. Have Take a good care. one, guys.